This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I mentioned last night because it was just when I was coming into the, we, we were starting the show last night and I touched on it, this thing with the stadium now. That our stadium, that we are going to the city, hopefully to recoup the money down the road. But our city is spending another $500,000 to fix up some leaks and some other things in the stadium because the there was water, there was... There are continuing ongoing problems with our still new stadium. And I got thinking about this today, and and Matthew Van Donjen did a terrific piece in the paper outlining, since the stadium has been, quote, quote, done, what we've had to do to add to it, to fix it, to repair it. Let me go through the list very quickly here. And I don't know if this is an absolutely complete list. By the way, if you're calling in for the quiz question... Let it ring. Luke will get to you as fast as he can. He's got to write some stuff down. I don't know if this is an absolutely complete list, but this is the list that of significant ones. Uh, And he writes, here's the highlight list of post-construction fixes the city has stepped in to do so far. One, install draft beer lines. Two, replace 12 rain-damaged television screens. Indoor monitors were initially uh, installed outdoors. uh, Swapping out faulty baby change tables. Replacing railings in various areas. Improving ventilation in the popcorn making room. Installing eight water bottle bottle filling stations. Uh, That was an oversight by the city, not the builder. Paying for emergency generators to power the station during a Ticat home game when the transformer failed. Paying a forensic engineer to investigate after a massive tower speaker plunged into the empty football stands last summer. A subsequent safety audit of other hanging features was also completed. Uh, New plans to fix leaky, this is what we're talking about today, uh, leaky expansion joints as well as faulty floor drains. Upcoming plans to improve audio and video systems at the stadium. It, It goes on and on and on. And this is, remember, this is a brand new stadium. Now, there were always going to be some. There's always some. There's always some stuff. We know there's always some things. But we don't expect that it's going to be really massively significant things. We do not expect speakers to fall out of the sky. We don't expect, I don't think, I don't think we expect that we're going to have leaks into private suites. There's a lot of things going on here. And here's what I want to ask you tonight in this first segment. First of all, I don't blame the Thai cats for this. You can blame the Thai cats for fighting for location and everything else. They don't have any, this is not a Thai cat issue that there are flaws with the stadium. And you can blame the city for agreeing to the location of the stadium. The city did not build the stadium. It's not the city's fault that there are flaws with the stadium. This is a builder issue. This is problems in the construction and the finishing of the stadium. And so this is, this is the thing that I can't help but think about today. And it's not, it's not a slam at LRT by any stretch at all. That is the LRT is the LRT. We're going to have the LRT. My, my thought though, as I'm reading this and I'm reminded of this again and again and again, what confidence should I have or should you have that a massive project built by the province is going to be seamless. Now, this is what I'm talking about with the LRT. We've got a $1 billion, 14, potentially 14, 11 or 14 kilometer long LRT that is going to be constructed in this city. And the last time the province oversaw 
a major construction project, it has been nothing but problems, delays and problems. Let's not leave out the delays. Delays and flaws. And again, I cannot overstate the fact that a giant speaker fell out of the sky that could have killed somebody if there was anybody in the stands that day. These are not little trifling things. Some of them are. But these, some of these are significant things. Water, enough water pouring into parts of the stadium that it's $500,000 in repairs. Think about that for a second. If you have a leak in your house, and you have to repair some drywall or some ceiling panels or something else. How much would that cost? A couple thousand dollars? Maybe a little more than that? I don't know. We're talking $500,000 in repairs for this kind of stuff. This is, this is not little drips and little streams of water. And so when I'm looking at this going, okay, a province, the province oversaw this. The province is now going to be overseeing, well, through, when I say overseeing, not building, all right? Again, I understand the province won't, the province hired people to build, the province will hire people to build LRT. They won't, the province won't specifically itself be building it, but it'll be overseeing a project. It'll be hiring and overseeing. And I got to tell you, leaving aside the pros or cons of the LRT, I don't know exactly what kind of confidence that I'm supposed to be feeling that the LRT is going to be a seamless construction project. Fred's on the line. Fred, how are you tonight? Not bad, Scott. I like your show. I listen to you every night, and uh, when I get a chance to call in, it, I appreciate you taking my call. Thanks, Fred. Now, what's going on with the city of Hamilton? I am qu- quite disgusted because I'm a Hamiltonian. I've been here all my life. What gets me, when they had this construction with the football stadium, uh, the city council had Ferguson, used to be a construction worker or CEO or whatever on construction, very poor job because he was supposed to overlook this. No, 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 Fred, let me correct you. Lloyd Ferguson was the point man for the city, but he had no, the city had no control over the construction of the stadium whatsoever. Right. No control, but it was for him to notice if there was any default or any problem to bring forward to the to city council because city council picked him to be an overseer of any problems within the construction of the field. No, I, again, Fred, I'm sorry. I got to correct you because the city literally had nothing to do with the construction of the stadium whatsoever. They could no. come up with, and so even if the city had found flaws, and generally they weren't even on site, even if they had found flaws, it was entirely up to the builder and the and the, uh, I the problem. Scott, but what I'm trying to say is he was supposed to be a person to see the problem and tell the city, and then the city would get on, on their butt, the government, to fix X, X and O. That's what his position was that city council did for him. Now, city council, if you remember now with the LRT, they've done the same thing. They put him, because he was construction, to do the overseeing again of the work on the LRT. Fred, I, I appreciate your call. I'm going to talk about that now, but thanks for the call, and I'll talk to you anytime. Give me a shout back anytime you like. Okay. Uh, I, I will disagree with Fred on the point, about, and I'm not defending Lloyd Ferguson. L- neither Lloyd Ferguson nor any other city councillor had any real impact until the stadium was essentially complete, and they started going through the stuff, and they started being late, and then council was trying to find a way to have, remember when council tried to have their inspectors come in to be able to sign off so the Ticats could play a game? Remember the top half of the West 
stands couldn't be open for one of the games and for the concert. There was a lot of stuff that was going on, but this was not a city thing. If this had been a city issue, if the city councillors, city staff, if they had been able to be hands-on with this project, I don't know if it would have gone better. But I believe it would have because I believe that those people who are closer to the people and more susceptible to being voted out if this thing is a disaster would have been more motivated to make sure this thing was done absolutely right. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have hired Ontario Sports Solutions or whatever the company was. But Again, I don't know if it would have been better or not. We can't ever know that. All we know is the way it was didn't go particularly well, hasn't gone particularly well. Uh, again, I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with everything Fred said. It's just you can't put this one on the city. You certainly can't put this one on Lloyd Ferguson, not in any way. This is a provincial problem that trickles down or trickles up from the builder and the subtrades below them. This is their problem, not the city. The city got handed this thing, which was obviously a mess. You you did say though uh, just a couple minutes ago that you wouldn't you weren't defending Lloyd Ferguson. I'll defend Lloyd Ferguson. I have been incredibly impressed with how blunt, how forward, and how um, I don't know what the best way to put it is, but he has been very uh, in front of everything with the stadium. When things were going wrong, he was the one standing up and saying, "This is bad. Why are you doing a bad job?" Oh, uh, listen. When I said I'm not defending Lloyd Ferguson, I, what I meant, and I, I wasn't clear, I'm not defending him because he doesn't need defending because there was no part of this that go. was his responsibility. I, that, I wasn't saying it like to hang I, him out there. I believe he he did everything he possibly could to try and make the stadium work, and uh, it was just such a mismanaged project that it, it was never going to happen. But that brings us forward because look, we, we are, we can look backwards all we want. Every time I bring this up, somebody, and I don't blame you, I, I don't blame you, but somebody raises the, well, it should have been in a different location. Well, sure. It should have been in a different location. All right. But we can't move it. It's not on wheels. We can't suddenly attach it to a tractor and move it to somewhere else in the city. We've got it yeah. where we've got it. It's a little late for that now. It, it's, it can't, but looking forward, this is my problem I have. Again, I'm not arguing at this point for the same reason. I'm not arguing for or against LRT in this case. It's, this is not a LRT stinks or LRT is great. This is simply what confidence should I have that the LRT, when it's constructed, again, really with the city not having a whole lot to do with it, being a bystander, although it's being built within the city limits, what confidence should I have that the province is going to do this right and that we are not going to find problems with the LRT? Because think of how the LRT, now I don't know, I mean, I'm not a technical LRT expert. The one thing I can say though, from seeing all the pictures, is there is going to be in the middle of the road, a big like concrete thing in which the tracks go. What if they heave? What if something under there breaks? What if whatever happens? I don't know. But based on what we've seen from the stadium, I am incredibly concerned about what's going to happen with the LRT. I am incredibly concerned that we are going to get, first of all, that it's going to be late. Although that would hardly be a surprise for a government project. I mean, if this thing is on time, I'll be shocked. I'll be way more surprised if it's on time than if it's late. But even if when we get it, what happens? Is this going to be done right? Is this thing going to be done perfectly? Because the last thing 
that we've got that we can point to is a problem. And it's not just that one. What was the other? We always talk about this. What was the other big, big project that the city agonized over before that? The Red Hill Creek Expressway. What have we had now with the Red Hill Creek Expressway in recent years, in recent days, in recent months that people have talked about? Two things. A, it's not designed for the, some people say, for the speed that people are traveling it because there's no middle dividers. And two, what happens when we get a lot of rain? We get floods in certain parts of it. This is, now that's certainly a lesser issue than the stuff we're hearing about at the stadium. But I'm I'm not with this. I'm not pointing fingers at the Ticats. I'm not pointing fingers at city council. I'm not pointing fingers at city staff. This is a province problem. And the province is in charge of the LRT construction. They're not, again, they're not, I understand they're not building it. They're overseeing it. They're managing the project. They're going to be the overseers. I'm looking at this going, based on the stadium, I've got all my fingers and toes crossed, hoping that we are not five or six or seven or eight, whatever it is when this thing is done years from now, going, wait a second, did we learn nothing from the stadium situation are we now dealing with a faulty or problematic construction of now this big project? I certainly hope not. I'm not rooting for it. Believe me, I'm not rooting for it. The best possible thing, the LRT is going to happen, whether you like it or not. If you're in favor, it's a great thing. If you're not, it's a horrible thing. If you're Fred Eisenberger, it's a great thing. If you're Bob Bertina, it's a horrible thing, apparently. We don't even have time today to talk about Did you see that Bob Bertina, used, we talked about the letter he sent. Well, Fred Eisenberger fired back today. Some uh, some tasty, tasty tidbits in that letter from Fred Eisenberger, where, um, let me see if I can find some of these lines here. The, uh, uh, while Mr. Bertina seems to have grown tired of federal issues during his short tenure in Ottawa. Ooh, kazing. That's a, that's a nice, uh, that's a little morsel. Perhaps he could reawaken his interest by assisting the city with federal investments in our infrastructure, by helping our Stelco workers and retirees secure their pensions and benefits. Where Mr. Bertina could make a difference, he is uncharacteristically silent. Here's a bet. We haven't heard the end of this little discussion. But anyway, we get back to my point. Whether you like the LRT or not, it's going to happen, it seems. And if it's going to happen, we all should be rooting for it to be done properly and done well And based on what we've seen from the stadium, all we can do is hope and pray that somehow it turns out better. Because if the LRT ends up being in the paper and in discussion day after day after day, years after it was finished because of its flaws and its construction issues, man, oh man, are we going to have a mess on our hands in downtown. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I have loved, I mean, I have loved this year's Stanley Cup playoffs. With what I've been able to see, and I'm obviously working evenings, so I don't see all of it, but with what I've been able to see, it has been great hockey, it's been competitive hockey, it's been fast hockey, the Leafs were good, the Oilers are great, there's a lot of stuff to like about what is going on in the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Ottawa, but okay, they'll get knocked out next round. Anyway, besides that, there is a lot to love about what's going on in the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. So how is it that the NHL, 
the overseers, the purveyors, the umbrella organization for all this good stuff can consistently, constantly find ways to poke its finger in our eyes and do stupid things that makes you wonder what in the world they are thinking down at head office. Joining me to discuss this today, favorite guest of this show, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Bubba, how are you tonight? Au revoir. All right. Now, help me out here because I know you are way smarter than me, so maybe you can put your head, your brain, into the head of the NHL bigwigs and try and explain the thinking. First of all, P.K. Subban gets basically mugged, gets a stick cross-checked over his head hard enough that it knocks off his helmet, gets a knee up in the face, gets driven into the ice, and somehow for that, because he covers his head because it hurt, he gets a penalty himself for embellishment. That was crazy enough. But now, eight days later after this happens, eight days after they decide, you know you know what, we should find that guy. He needs to be fined for that too. It wasn't enough for the two-minute penalty. We got to drive it home into P.K. Subban that what he did was horrible. What What is with this league? I think it's just, you know, they're trying to cut down on what they believe to be is faking or embellishment is is the word that's you know being used and they've been you know on this for you know much of the regular season I'm surprised to see it in the postseason too that you know uh, because we've seen an example Nick Benino was one of the Pittsburgh Penguins did he get fined uh, at this point not yet uh, but he certainly should be because that was um, that 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 matches soccer faking fought soccer embellishment as one of the, the better ones. For those, for those who don't know what we're talking about, late in a game between Pittsburgh and Washington, uh, with Washington coming on and almost looks like they were pressing for the tying goal, a high stick came close to Nick Benino's face and he snapped his head back. It hit and his shoulder. It hit his shoulder, but it, for, to the referee who was behind him, <laughs> it looked like it caught his face and he sold it well. Never came close to his face in truth, but he got the penalty and that killed Washington's game. So, uh, you know, it's tough. I mean, But why eight days? It took eight days to come up with a decision to suspend him or to, to fine him. You know, I'm curious at this league, and I've said this before, that they kind of make it up as they go along. And, you know, obviously I want to guarantee you, I am going to guarantee you, Scott, and I'm saying this off of the Sidney Crosby you know, going headfirst into the board situation from a couple of nights ago, that you're going to see some tweaking uh, by the end in the, during the off season to the uh, spotters protocol and what uh, qualifies as as a, as a hit or a check that you know players should be pulled off the ice. I mean, because how on earth was Sidney Crosby not pulled off the ice? in that situation. Well, I'm I surprised mean, he didn't get a penalty for embellishing. <laughs> he went in there so hard. Yeah. And 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 to me showed signs. I'm not saying that he had a concussion. I would never go there. But his when he recovered, he did continue his shift. I I I will give him that. Uh, Crosby's a tough customer. But when he got up as slow as he did and tried to recover and continue his shift, it would look to me to be no doubt that he was woozy. Well, you know, I got to say that when that first happened, that was one of those moments that you, I, I firmly believe, and I hope I'm wrong, but I firmly believe that with the speed and the, in some ways, recklessness that guys play, we are going to have someone at some point in this league break his neck. It's just inevitable 
with guys getting cross-checked five feet away from the boards and going head for That was one of those ones where I held my breath for a second because the way he went in, man, that looked bad. That looked so dangerous, the way he hit the boards with his head that way. I have no idea how it hasn't happened yet. I, I don't either. And that's when, and it's unfortunate, but that's when the league is going to take things seriously. That, I mean, when someone either is paralyzed or dies on the ice, that is when suddenly they're going to say, okay, now we've all had our fun. Now we're going to prevent you from cross-checking a guy from behind into the boards. Until then, they don't they they talk a good game, Bubba, but they don't seem to care. They don't do anything that suggests they really care about it. Well, and to and to Don Cherry's point, and not to glorify him for for too much, but I mean, his, for his continual ranting and raving over the the icing rule. I mean, the only league in in all of hockey around around the world. That just doesn't have touch icing. What what are they waiting on? So many injuries. Well, so they, I mean, they guys run into the boards. They tweaked, as you say, use the word tweak. They tweaked that a bit, and it's made it better. But the problem with it now is, it remains what you just described, making it up on the fly. I saw one. Well, the game, the Edmonton game that they lost. Oh, total bad judgment. And you say, well, wait, why was that one waved off? And other ones, I've seen them shoulder to shoulder, and they, it gets called. It just you have. This league and the problem with it is, and again, I'm a hockey fan. I'm a Stanley Cup playoff fan. I don't have, and I like to think that I'm reasonably knowledgeable about this. I don't have a clue half the time. With this play, with these playoffs, I don't have a clue what goalie interference is. I, I mean, I really have no idea what goalie interference is. When Sidney Crosby gets a baseball bat swing by Alex Ovechkin that's not a penalty or suspension or even a fine, I have no idea what slashing is. The league just looks to be confused more than anything. It, it almost seems like the league is overwhelmed and doesn't know how to handle some of this stuff. Yeah, and, and it, it seems mysterious to me because, I mean, we hear the phrase playoff hockey. What does that really mean? I mean, yeah, the emotions are higher, the stakes are higher, but I also see a change in the way the game is officiated, Scott, and the fact that, and, and I hate Pace of play is something that we're hearing in the world of sports. It's you know one of the new phrases that everyone's talking about. We all love pace of play, we, and the the officials seem to be at during the playoffs tucking away the whistle. And we are getting these long runs where you know there's no whistle for four or five minutes. But within those four or five minutes, there are times where players are being hacked and slashed and held and hold and and like. It, it, and I don't know, I mean, I, hey, I'm the first to be standing on my feet when it's back and forth the way it is, but there are penalties that are happening, but the ref tucking the whistle away, and we've heard this too, where you know the less we see of the ref, the better in a game too. So I, I don't know if the league has found itself in that sort of quandary of, you know, we love the back and forth of excitement and, uh, and excitement of the postseason where we sort of tuck the whistle away. So I, I don't know. I don't know what's right and what's wrong anymore. The, the one thing the league has to hope for tonight in the second game tonight between Edmonton and Anaheim is that Edmonton does not score a goal while gently nudging Anaheim's goalie, whoever's in net for them, probably Gibson tonight, and the league waves it off. Because people in Edmonton will march to the border with pitchforks and torches and burn down the United States if that happens. I mean, it would be, and and you could see that happening because I didn't realize the way this is actually done in the NHL, but in the NFL, 
they have the command center. In the CFL, they have the command center. All the replays go to one group of people, a consistent group of people who see all the plays, so they presumably have some consistency. With the NHL, there is the command center, but there's also the senior official who has a say in it, who's in the building, and the two referees get to make the final decision on what happens. Well, that leads to all kinds of inconsistencies and different interpretations. You don't end up with the same thing meaning the same thing. Yeah, I, I'm never a fan. I mean, okay, if the, the official makes the call on the ice, I, I'm okay with that. But I'm, I'm, I don't know why this bothers me, but it, I, I find it kind of Mickey Mouse when I'm watching after a play or after a controversial call or uh, a, a coach's challenge when I'm looking at the, the officials huddled around an iPad. It, it, it just looks junior to me. And I, and you're right. I just wish that the central central command um, would come up with the decision. And once the official makes his call or, or her call, um, that it goes from there. And if a coach's challenge happens, or or then it's just done from central command. Because to me, it looks kind of Mickey Mouse. And wouldn't it make it so much easier for the league? Because right now. If you can have the referees have to skate out to center ice and say, after review by central command, it has been determined this is not a goal, that takes all the pressure off the referee who's now got to make a decision. And if he's in a hostile building, he's a human being. I know they don't pick and choose, but it's in a hostile building. I can't believe that it doesn't have some small impact that he's going to have to go out there and face the music if he decides to injure by his decision, the home team. Take it out of his hands. Make it easy for him to make that call. Uh, and I'm wondering, and it, as you say that, Scott, it makes me wonder, does that, is that in, in terms of the official, when you take that, I don't know, I don't know, control, if you want to say, away from them, does that in, is that insulting to them? Maybe. And maybe. maybe that's the reason why they don't do it. But look, I, to me, this these playoffs, the stuff that we're talking about, this is not the officials. I don't. I mean, I don't have a problem actually with the way the officials have called these playoffs. Of course, there are some mistakes. There's always going to be some mistakes. There's mistakes in any league because, again, people are human. My issues are with the guys in the front office who actually have time to think about this stuff. I mean, yeah, the thing with calling Subban for. Uh, enhancement or whatever embellishment was was a stupid one by the guys on the ice but besides that all the other ones these are things that guys have had time to think about and have still made goofy decisions that you say I don't understand at all what the consistent what the what the measure is what the bar is on this thing it just is all over the place anyway um, normally I would say to you at this point because we're down to the last few teams who is your team that you really want to see win the Stanley Cup and I'll let you answer that question, but I will also ask you, who is the team you least want to win the Stanley Cup who's still in the playoffs? <laughs> least? Um, wow, that's that's really interesting. That's a great question. Because there's got to be somebody in the league who you, a player, a coach, a general manager, an owner, that you just go, ugh. Can't stand the thought of you hoisting the cup. I will be. I will be honest. There's no one there right now that that makes me feel that way. Um, I, I do believe. I find it comical 
somehow that if Alex Ovechkin, and I know there's more than Alex Ovechkin, because to, to hold it on him is, is just really not fair, because there are so many other players on the Washington Capitals. But to see them fail against the Pittsburgh Penguins, and as the President's Trophy winners, and not even get to the conference semifinals, to me would just be almost comical. I mean, because they've tried different coaches, Hunter, Hanlon, now Barry Trotz. Uh, they've had, you know, a, a president. They've won president's trophies. They've had a goaltender in Holtby that's won, you know, how many games? I mean, leads the league and wins, I believe. Uh, Ovechkin, Backstrom, Kuznetsov, and yet somehow here they are in a seventh game situation against the rival Pittsburgh Penguins. And and, and to use that old narrative, if Sid beats Cross, Sid, Sid beats Ovi again, it's just unbelievable. All right, so does that mean that Washington is your non-favorite? I, I I'm not going to say hated, but, but that's the one to me that I, I, will, I will giggle the most at. Okay, who is your team that you would like to see win the Stanley Cup? The, the Senators. I mean, I've been, I've been on the Senators for uh, uh, since the halfway through the year. A couple of things here with that team. The emergence of Eric Carlson. I mean, we talk about Crosby, we talk about... Uh, uh, Edmonton's uh, Connor, Connor um, uh, McDavid, but this guy—I'm not going to say Bobby Orr, but his ability to control the game is reminding people of Bobby Orr. His ability to lead the team, his ability to play the way he has played with a, two fractures in his foot—he's been hurt since a game, since the third last game of the regular season—and continues to lead his squad. The narrative with the goaltender of, of Craig Anderson and and his wife—that has been unbelievable. Clark MacArthur missing virtually two years uh, with, due to concussion-like symptoms and cut, scoring winning goals. And, there, and, 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 and here's the, the other thing that I like about the Senators. With the Maple Leafs getting as much attention as they do, and rightfully so, they had a wonderful season. But to see Ontario's other team do well is something that I, I cheer. All right. I know you're always an individualist, and um, it shows here because you're the only person outside of the Ottawa city limits that wants the Senators to win. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that nobody outside of Ottawa likes the Senators. Well, because they're all Leaf fans. Well, maybe. And, and, and that's why. I mean, it's, you're, I get it. I understand it. But I'm not a Leaf fan, right? I never have been. You know, always been more of a Sabres than a Leaf fan. So I, I understand the, the, the sort of backlash, Ottawa backlash when it comes from people in the, you know, in the, in the GTA here because, they're, you know, they're all rah-rah Leafs. But I think as a team, I, I really believe the Senators. And you know what? Even on for our hometown people here on the station, uh, you know how about Guy Boucher? You know who who went, who lost his job in Tampa Bay. You know did it the right way, went to Europe. You know continued to work hard, gets another opportunity, and here he is. You know succeeding. Uh, Guy Boucher, former head coach of the Bulldogs. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? Um, I'll give you part of your answer correct. You're you're partially correct. The the Senators are part of the answer. They're the team that we want to see not win. And the team we want to see win is the Oilers. Maybe the Predators. I'll give you either one of those. I would love to see P.K. Subban win because the the blowback in Montreal, if that happened, would be hysterical. It would be so much fun to watch what would happen. People in Montreal's heads would explode if P.K. Subban won the Stanley Cup. And the Oilers, Cam Talbot, Darnell Nurse, 
you know, great story if that happens. Hey, we are out of time, sadly, Bubba. Always appreciate you doing this. Thanks for spending some time and uh, enjoy the games tonight. Hope uh, hope it doesn't put your your time frames and deadlines too far off tonight. <laughs> no, we're working through it there, Scott. It's good stuff, though, but the playoffs, you're right. They have been outstanding, and uh, I'm hoping that they continue to be so. Bubba O'Neill, you can see him tonight on CHCH. Thanks, sir. Okay, good night. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The woodchuck, also called the groundhog, is one of the larger Canadian rodents. A mature adult may weigh up to 17 pounds. In winter, it depends almost entirely on body fat until April, when new plant food reappears. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize what was just playing? Of course you do. Hinterland who's who. Anyone who is a Canadian of a certain vintage, and you don't have to be that far along in the vintage department, remembers Hinterland Who's who? As I say, every Canadian knows it. Everyone who's not Canadian would wonder what in the world we were smoking if we sat there watching and listening to that. Talking about the woodchuck or the loon or the beaver or whatever else. Uh, We are essentially a weird people. We are. Canadians, we are a weird people. Well, to explain this, my next guest, J.C. Velomir, is a Hamilton resident. She is an author of the book, Is Canada even real, which is a great, great title and a hilarious book. And she is also the self-described most Canadian woman in the world, which is a title I love. She joins me now. JC, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. This is terrific. I'm so excited. And when you say weird, I want people to know, I mean, weird in the best. Oh, of course. Absolutely. When I, I mean, yeah, not weird in a negative sense. We're just an, (laughs) we're an odd people. When you look around the world, there's nobody like Canadians. We are super weird. Explain before we move along, please, the whole hinterland who's who thing. How How is that part of us? Because <laughs> it Isn't is. It? It's so beautiful, right? That haunting piece of music called Flute Poem. <laughs> is that what it's called? And I can just see children across the nation, their heads <laughs> cocking to the side like cocker spaniels as that theme comes on, followed by a public service announcement that lets you know about um, the species in Canada. Tells you how your ancestors just decimated their population through a wide variety of tactics. And then encourages you to write a letter to the government to find out more information about things like a woodchuck. They never they never would say, you know, maybe go out into your backyard. You know, see if there's one of the see if there's one in your woodpile. No, write a letter, <laughs> watch the television. And then Canada Post, that's how you're going to interact with wildlife. And of course, when these were really big, of course, there was probably one TV in your house and you'd be sitting there going, Dad, shut up. I'm listening to the woodchuck information because, you Did know. Did you know a beaver's teeth never stop growing? <laughs> yeah, that's you could get, right? Yeah, Mom, keep it down. I'm learning about the beaver. And yeah. loads of people did write in for that. Did they really? Oh, yeah. It was an extraordinarily popular program. I mean, it would have to be because the... the um, the campaign started in the mid-60s. The originals were in black and white. And then they carried right in through till the mid-80s and even into the early 90s. And then they got a reboot. Well, In the reboots, we have the flute poem song, but then the bass drops, and it's got a funky beat. I, I, <laughs> I haven't even seen those. What I remember, what I thought, where I thought you were going to go with the reboot was when SCTV started mocking them and doing, uh, doing send-ups of them, because those were hysterical. Absolutely hysterical, right? And they are so ripe for send-ups. I think what people don't realize, um, 
sometimes it's an inside job. Like when people think about uh, the heritage minutes and their earnestness. Yes. Well, I talked to the man who, who commissions those um, ideas for the heritage minutes. And, uh, you know, he's part of the board that decides on them. And you know who else is on the board? Rick Mercer. It's almost like they're trolling us with these funny PSAs. You know, they're just baiting us to laugh at them. Well, see, that's the point about this that I find so funny with all these things that are so Canadian is there's a part of it that you look at and you go, I'm supposed to be being moved by our history as I watch this. I'm supposed to be inspired by this. And yet it's just, and again, I say this in the most complimentary and loving way, they are so Canadian. They really are. And you go, I can't really take this all that seriously. But we're all in on the joke, right? We all kind of get it. We all kind of get the earnest, corny, occasionally amateurish hand that some of our (laughs) industries take when it comes to culture. You know, TV production, movie production. Um, But you know what? New Canadians... Don't, aren't necessarily in on the joke, right? They're just very confused. <laughs> and uh, so that's that's what this book is going to help with. I hope so. Well, it, the, the, it, it lets a lot of newcomers in on some of our inside jokes because I don't know if you've ever lived in another country, but I have. And even though I lived, I lived in Ireland for a while. And even though it's a country that speaks our language and has very similar culture, I thought. Uh, I was super surprised when I got over there, and they didn't know who Wayne Gretzky was, and they couldn't believe I didn't know who Wade Rooney was, some football player. But, you know, um, there's so much more to the culture, and you really do feel like an outsider not knowing. So I'm hoping that this book will help new Canadians uh, to feel like they're in on the joke so that they can laugh at these things too, and they, they have a shared touch point that we can all reference. Well, again, we use the word weird as a as a term of endearment when we talk about ourselves. And you, your book is very funny, pointing out the some of the inanities of the Canadian culture and being Canadian. When did you, because the title is great. The, I mean, the title of saying, is Canada even real? Uh, first of all, where did that title come from? I think it's a common internet reaction when people post pictures of, you know, a fan of Canadian $50 bills being run under the faucet. And people seeing that, oh, Canadian money is different colors, it's see-through, and it's waterproof. And then there's an internet myth going around that, you know, if you scratch the maple leaves, it smells like maple, you know. Does it? Does uh, it? Because I've tried. I've tried, and I think it's a psychosomatic thing. I think it's sort of, you're convinced that it does because someone told you, and so you go, oh yeah, I kind of smell maple. Is it really smelling like maple? Well, it depends on who you got the money from. Maybe they were just <laughs> heavy into their pancakes, you know? Yeah, you got, a, you got it from a logger, and that yeah, may have some sap on it. So, um, But yeah, the money is fantastic until you put it in the dryer. Or yes, or leave it on the dash of your car in the summer. <laughs> it's, it's a great decoration when the $50 bill is melted to your dashboard, but <laughs> doesn't do much for being able to spend it. Um, but, but yeah, the Is Canada Even Real? There are a lot of things, but when did you start to, when did it come to mind that there are a lot of weird, funny, odd things about this country? And like, was there one thing that sort of tipped the balance and made you go, yeah, you know what? There really is. And then you start thinking about it and you come up with all these others. Was there a moment? No, it was a long process. When I moved to Hamilton 10 years ago, I became the associate editor of Hamilton Magazine. And so I was looking at stories through a Hamilton lens. If it wasn't to do with Hamilton, I wasn't We weren't reporting on it in Hamilton Magazine. After that, I went to work at Canadian Living Magazine, and I'm looking at stories now through a lens that's got to be Canadian, or we're not interested in in running it. We've got to find the Canadian angle to anything we want to report on. And so in the process of of looking at media and news and celebrity and 
um, human behavior through a lens of uh, Canadian only really puts you in a mindset after a few years, right? Um, and through that, I got to see, you know what? It's a pretty bananas place to live. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, uh, I started this book before, well, not the book, but the, I mean, the project in general. I have been blogging um, as your chief she-hoser for about five years. I've been doing a lot of um, Canadian culture work. I do a magazine that's all about Canadian culture and Canadian content called Villamare Magazine. Uh, and it had really built up to kind of a point where, I don't know, I think it was probably when I found out that Banam, um, it's not just that he's on LinkedIn. It's that he's not on he's, Twitter. He's on LinkedIn? Or anything else. <laughs> like, Banam's only social media network is LinkedIn. Very professional. And it, it's just like, <laughs> are, you tro- is, are you punking us, Banam? Like, I don't know, but I love it. It is, yeah, that, that one I would not have, I, th- I figured he would have a Facebook page or a Twitter or something, but yes, not, not connecting with other snowmen in the, uh, in the business world for, uh, for. And he's been the mascot of the Winter Carnival in Quebec for 65 years. Is he looking for a new job opportunity? I don't understand. That's, uh, yeah, wh- wh- what other options are, I mean, remember when, um, when, uh, oh, now I'm drawing a blank on the name, uh, the uh, Montreal Expos mascot. Yuppie. Yuppie decided to jump over when the Expos went away and uh, crossed the road and joined the Montreal Canadiens. I don't oh, know. He didn't that... decide. He didn't decide. The, uh, when the Expos left, they said, we're going to take Yuppie with us. But then when they, were, when they actually left, they left Yuppie behind. Yuppie was an orphan mascot. So is that same going to happen for Bonhomme? If the Carnival someday shuts down, the, the Canadians will have Yuppie and Bonhomme? Oh my goodness. I can't imagine that they're going to be a foster team for every (laughs) but you never know. But I would never, I would hate to think of a world without the Quebec Winter Festival. As I would, as would I, I've been there a couple times, uh, nearly froze to death both times. Um, Mm -hmm. The the Plains of Abraham in the middle of the festival during a blizzard, not the place you want to spend a whole lot of time. I'll be honest with you. Lovely, but very, very, very chilly. Um, but as I'm reading this book, as I'm looking through it, it is, uh, and I was thinking of how would I describe this again, because it's, it is poking fun, but it's doing, I, I, I thought the word a self-deprecating love letter is how I thought you were sort of describing Canada. There was, we are very weird. We do things very different from the rest of the world, but it's all very loving in the way you're doing it. It's, it is a real sentimental love letter to Canada, but in a way, um, in a jokey way, you know, <laughs> I think that's. Well, as, uh, it's a, as much of a, a Canadian Valentine as you can get, just to gently chide somebody. Okay, so let's go through a few of these things that I simply, and I, you brought some of these up, maybe some of them you didn't, but that I simply, no matter how hard I've tried, cannot understand about us. And let's start with one of the big ones. Could you please explain to me the metamorphosis of Drake from a member of Degrassi Junior High to the world's biggest hip-hop star? Is that bananas or what? Remember in the 90s, hip-hop was gangster rap. I mean, that was the main genre of rap that was at the forefront of hip-hop culture through the 90s. And people got really sick of that. Well, we only had one rap star in Canada. We only had Maestro Fresh West. He was the only guy. Well, I think you're overlooking <laughs> Chuck Claire, Cardinal Fischel, oh, okay. Snow, <laughs> uh, Mishy Me. Um, you know, there is and there has been a strong hip-hop community across the country and particularly in, in larger urban centers. Um, but what happened that was to Drake's advantage was, I mean, he wanted to be a hip hop star. He couldn't, I mean, he couldn't compete as a gangster rapper. 
Like, he was on a Canadian soap opera as a teen. He had zero street cred. His, his character on Degrassi, who got shot, had more street cred than he did. But the only thing that hip-hop values more than, um, than gangster and street cred is authenticity. And so Drake doubled down on that. When people chatted him about being from Canada, he owned that. Uh, when people said he was a mama's boy... He put pictures of himself and his mom all over his Instagram. He went on Jimmy Fallon and bragged about how great his mom is at Scrabble. Like, he just doubled down on being real, and people really responded to it. Well, you know, that we have a, a band here you know well in Hamilton, Arkells, uh, and one of their songs is Drake's Dad, where they bumped into him in, in California and, uh, and, you know, played that up. But it's not just Drake, because one of the things, and it's funny, last night we had Ray Lyle on the show, who was a big star in the Much Music era specifically, there were people, there are Canadian musical stars that you look at and you go, how in the world? Only in Canada, I guess because we have the CanCon, would someone like Mitsu have <laughs> been a gigantic star? I don't, I don't think she was going to crack. I don't think she cracked the U.S. market ever. Um, we, we, you know, when that CanCon thing made for some interesting celebrities in this country. Well, it, the, that regulation was so needed. I mean, Canadians only topped the billboard charts twice in the entire decade of the 1960s. And when the CRTC brought in those regulations under peers, you know, in 1970, within, uh, you know, immediately, they started to see an increase in um, Canadian record sales. I mean, before those that um, quota system where radio stations would have to play, at the time, I think it was 25%, and it has increased over the years. Um, at that time, radio stations were playing like one Canadian disc a week, mm. you know, so it wasn't... It was tough. Um, it was really tough. Yeah, to get into the studio to record costs a mint, and if you're not going to recoup any of that because the stations won't play what you are recording, I mean, it's futile. But um, from those regulations, we have generated, I mean, just when you think about it, 1970, all of a sudden, the guess who, right? Yep. All of a sudden, Anne Murray the most Juno-winningest person of all time. Um, you're getting Lighthouse. You're getting all kinds of uh, rock. But you're also seeing some of the people who had gone to the United States to record, people like Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Neil Young, uh, coming back because now, because there is a demand for Canadian music, now there is a reason to invest in studio equipment. And now we can produce um, quality music because it wasn't that the music that Canadian bands were was producing wasn't any good. It was that we didn't have recording studios where people could put together uh, professional-sounding discs. Yeah, it's uh, it, and it's funny you mentioned um, Neil Young and Leonard Cohen because on a number of polls and lists and everything else of greatest Canadian singers, they fall into the top two. And I think by most standards, they are not what we would call great singers. They may be poets, they may be musicians, it's funny that two of our three best musicians by a lot of these polls are guys that, again, would, would if they had gone on American Idol, they would have been kicked off in the audition. Yeah, they have what I would, would call a character voice, <laughs> you know, like a Tom Waits, you know, yep. or even sometimes Elvis Costello. There's a, but they're not Celine Dion. I mean, that woman has a voice as clear as a bell, yep. right? Um, but it shows, uh, I mean, for Lennon Cohen, I don't think he would have had a recording career if it wasn't that he was such a beautiful poet and his, his songs were so beautiful and that only he could deliver them in that way. Um, so there are different circumstances for different uh, 
for different artists. But yes, I mean, I think we all agree the year that Leonard Cohen won the Juno for Best Vocal Performance. Even he said only in Canada could I win this. <laughs> you uh, you start your book, or close to beginning your book, the first little while, um, not center, well, it centers on, it deals with one of the all-time Canadian television shows. And we all have our thoughts on Canadian television, some of which has been great, some, the littlest hobo. Um, is that the perfect, and when I say perfect, I mean the most Canadian TV show. Is there another TV show that is more Canadian than that one? Maybe the Beachcombers? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think of some other one. ran longer, and I mean, David Suzuki did guest star on Beachcombers. Did he? Uh, I think he, did. he might have even done it twice. Did not oh, know I that. A, I got a brush up on my well, book two. Yeah, th- it, it, Jeez, no, it, I should have these answers on my fingers. No, no, no. It's, but in your in your sequel, you can you can make sure that was in there. But <laughs> but I'm trying to think of like what is the most Canadian television show in the I sort of stereotypical you know, Canadian it, way. If you think about it, you'll know. Think about what is the most Canadian well, Hockey Night in Canada. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but besides <laughs> besides that one, but I mean, as that's a, that's, a that's a sports one, but uh, but as far as a scripted show, I'm trying. I was trying to think like, what's the most Canadian? Do you are you, do you feel confident that Little Trouble was scripted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they just let the dog go and say, "Follow the dog and do whatever it does." No reoccurring human cast. Very little <laughs> in the way of realistic dialogue. <laughs> the plots were ridiculously outlandish, and uh, and yet it it ran for six years. And I mean, people love it. Yeah, people the, love the theme song. People wear the T-shirts. I mean, it really. Uh, I think one of the few things now, one maybe one of the last shows that we'll have because uh, it was in the early to mid '80s, where you know we had very limited channels available mm-hmm. so you are kind of watching whatever's on if you're in northern ontario and you have 13 channels and four of them are french and um you know news is on the other ones and you have little solo that's obviously winning out i can't imagine children today watching that with the um other options they have you know on youtube and watching cartoons all day every day so there's something special in that it was probably one of the last bad shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I thought about this. I thought about this before you came on today. I thought I was thinking, okay, cause I was thinking about, okay, what I, you wrote about Littlest Hobo and it's a perfect, it's a perfect Canadian identity. It, it explains so much JC, but the one, you know, now you may or may not, I don't know, you're not, maybe not old enough, but there was a show, it was a game show that used to be on and it was the single most Canadian, single most awkward thing that ever existed on TV. It was Just Like Mum. Did you ever see oh, Just yeah. Like Mum? Where Fergie Oliver oh, would go yeah. around kissing the little girls on the lips oh, and you're like, yeah. ooh. The whole- I never thought he was creepy, but I have seen the YouTube clips and thought, oh God. Um, but it- yeah, I remember the Bake Off. I remember the big wheel. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, wrote, I really wanted to be on that show because you put ketchup in the brownies. I always thought, okay, I'm going to tell my mom beforehand that my brownies will be the one that have like super ketchup and then we'll be able to spin the wheel and go to Disney World or something. Yeah, but you had to kiss the host. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't do that in the States. If you had that show on in the States, it would be canceled within one episode. <laughs> it really would. The other thing that I want, and I know you brought this up in your book, and I think this is hysterical too, because this is so crazy. There were things about Canada, there have been over the years, and I mean, it, it becomes more difficult, I think, to have that 
very strong. It becomes not impossible, but more difficult to have the Canadian identity when there's, as you say, the internet and so many channels and everything else. But we used to, every time you would go to bed, they'd play O Canada and Greg Joy would win his silver medal. We didn't even have a gold medal to show on our end of TV (laughs) night. We had a silver medal that we just reveled in, which was ridiculous. But the other thing was every time it seemed you went to the movie theaters to watch a movie, you would get this song playing before the movie in a short. Everybody who's old enough to remember the log driver's waltz, you probably saw that at a few movie theaters over your years. Such a beautiful song. You know what? what, Interesting story. You may not have known this. It was written by a guy named Wade Hemsworth. You knew that part. His great nephew wrote at the Spectator for many years. He was a reporter at the Hamilton Spectator, also named Wade Hemsworth. Yep. And uh, I'll tell you, Wade Hemsworth, the Spectator reporter at the time, was very proud of Wade Hemsworth, the great uncle who wrote that piece. I made the mistake once of making a... um, a snide little comment about the fact that I'd seen that short again. Um, I never did. I never made that mistake a you second time. You spoke ill of the log driver's wall. I think it was because I'd been to the, the movies. Descendant of the man responsible. For I this. didn't know at the time, but I think it had been because I'd been to a bunch of movies and they played it before every single one of them. And it's like a ten-minute-long song. And sure, it's lovely and it's very Canadian. But after a while, it's you know, give us something new. Uh, <laughs> I guess. You're you you're a big fan the, of the log driver's walls. Patience of the log driver. No, I, I I guess I didn't. But that song, I, and again, like just a that is, we have certain songs in this country that are known to be Canadian. Oh, Canada, the Hockey Night in Canada theme song, probably a few Molson commercials. Uh, that's got to be in the in the mix as well. That's got to be one of those ones that most Canadians of a certain vintage, anyway, of a certain age, would remember very well. Oh, absolutely, and the accompanying uh, National Film Board animated short that accompanies it. Yep. It's so beautiful. Uh, and well well played. It's uh, the, the original has to be pretty crackly and thin now because it was used a lot over the years. <laughs> it is, um, the book is fantastic. I got to tell you, for anyone out there who is looking for something brilliantly funny to sit down and read, if you've got, uh, with summer coming up, if you're sitting outside by the pool or you're doing whatever, this is a book, honestly, you really want to grab this book. Uh, it is funny. It is Canadian. It is... Uh, it's one of those things that you will laugh a lot because it's a lot of inside jokes that if you took it, as you, as JC just said, if you took this and gave it to someone in Thailand or South Africa or Scotland, I'm sure, and maybe you've already done this, JC, I think you would probably get a complete befuddled, glassy eyed look at a lot of it. But if you are a Canadian, you get it. You get it. You get it. JC Villamere, the book is called... Uh, the book is called, is Canada even real when it's released? Is it released officially tomorrow? No, it came out on Saturday. came out on Saturday. Chapters, Walmart, online, Amazon, and absolutely in person tomorrow night at the AGH Annex starting at six o'clock until eight. I'm hosting the most spectacular, most Canadian book launch party. It's going to be so fun. 
Bruiser the Bulldog is coming. We have some kids' activities. There'll be a bar there for the grown-ups. I'll be reading a chapter. It's going to be a lot of fun, and you can pick up a copy of Is Canada Even Real there, and I'd be happy to sign it for you. I knew there was something tomorrow, and I'm glad you pointed that out. If you want to go see JC, if you want to get the book, and you should, uh, that is tomorrow at the Art Gallery. And also, if you caught only part of the interview, if you tuned in late, or if you listened and you thought, I want to know more about it, Graham Rockingham did a great piece in The Spec today. Uh, go online to thespec.com, grab a copy of the paper you can read, and read about JC. You can see a picture of JC. Um, and you can see you're holding the book. I mean, if it's all there, so go check it out. JC, thanks so much for doing this tonight. It's a great book. I, I, I can't wait to spend more time with it and I appreciate you spending some time tonight. Thank you so much. I'm just bowled over by your kind words. Thank you so much. It is uh, JC Villamere. It really is a terrific book. And again, it's one of those ones that I know that if you were to give it to your American cousin, they would not get it at all. It's like telling the inside joke at a party when the person standing with you who wasn't there to get the inside joke, they look at you like they don't know what you're talking about, but the people who were there are laughing hysterically. It is, it is very, very funny. Uh, once again, Is Canada Even Real? By J.C. Villamere, who lives in Hamilton. Writes out of Hamilton. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.